Today our text is going to be Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. We're going to look at this section of scripture here. Um, Actually, I'm going to read the preceding verse. I'm going to read verse, I'm going to begin in verse 11, and I'm going to read through verse 17. Colossians 3, verse 11 begins this way, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit dwelling in your people, and the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, God, illuminate this word. Cause this word to renew our minds, to mold us and to shape us and to conform us to the very image of Christ. That we would be a people that would give witness to the truth joyfully, courageously, brightly in this dark world. Father, we ask that you would do that for your glory. We thank you for the privilege of being called your people and giving witness to this gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, we begin with a therefore. Remember what I always say, when you see a therefore, you need to know what it's there for. And so this therefore hearkens us back to the preceding verses. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Therefore, because you are now men to whom Christ has become all in all. Remember in Christ, there's now not Jew, there's not Greek, there's no Jew or Gentile division anymore in Christ. There's not slave or free. There's not rich or poor. Those distinctions, those social distinctions, have been abolished. Paul even says there's neither male nor female. He's not abolishing gender. Understand this, because the same scripture that teaches there's no longer male nor female in Christ gives us very clear distinctions in in gender, in gender roles. What Paul is telling us there is, under the old covenant, 
where only men could receive the sign of the covenant, now in Christ, there is no longer a male-female divide in that women now receive the sign of the covenant. And what is the sign of the covenant now? It's no longer circumcision as it was under the Old Testament. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the sign of the covenant is now baptism. Do we baptize only men? Just like under the Old Covenant, they only circumcise men? No. This is a better covenant based on better promises. Now women can receive the sign of the covenant. So we baptize men and we baptize women. We baptize Jews and we baptize Gentiles. We baptize free and we baptize slave. We baptize rich and we baptize poor. Back in, in this time period, we baptize citizens of Rome and we baptize barbarians. That's the language Paul is using here. There's not a distinction in Christ. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. Christ is now our identity. Therefore, as chosen ones, chosen out by God in His grace, as those elect and set apart for God, and now having become the object of His love, this is what, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, As those chosen out, those elect and set apart for God. That's what holiness means, to be set apart for God. And because you are that now in Christ, put on, it's a command. The command here is a very forceful command. Put on or clothe yourself. So this is what this, this is, I've done this before. So if I back up in, in, in verse 2, um, I'm sorry, in chapter 2. So if we go back, let's look back just for a moment here. In the preceding verses of, of, of chapter 3, let's look at verse 8. Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off. And so that term, put off, is just like me, putting off this jacket, I'm in trouble now, because my little microphone is here. <laughs> Should have never done that. That's okay. We can fix it. So it's just like putting off this jacket, put off these, throw that away. Don't wear that anymore. And, and so what am I going to do? I'm going to put on the new man. And this is the word picture the scripture is painting for us. I'm putting off one thing to be done with it, and I'm putting on a new thing, and this is now what I wear. This is what envelops me. This is what the scripture is teaching us here. So the command is to put on or to clothe yourself in the same manner as the elect. So he says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, set apart and loved by God, put on these things. And then we're going to talk about the things we're commanded to put on. And he's saying, you are the elect of God. You are chosen out by God. Therefore, 
put on or live in a manner or clothe yourself, envelop yourself with the things consistent with those who have been chosen out by God. So put on, clothe yourself in the same manner as the elect of God. Be completely enveloped by the very mind and the very characteristics of Christ. Walk as those who are God's elect in Christ, his chosen out ones from before the foundation of the world. Put on the same manner of life as the elect of God, or put on the same manner of life as Christ, who is your life. Christ is not just a life we model. Christ is our life if we have been born again. As the elect of God who are set apart for him and loved by him, put on tender mercies. Or the ESV says compassionate hearts. Put on merciful and compassionate hearts. In the King James, that, is, that word translated there from the Greek is translated as bowels. Yes, those bowels. Your inner parts, your inwardmost parts. Bowels of mercy. Put on bowels of mercy. The Greek word there is literally the word that speaks of the inward parts, the bowels. We don't like to talk about bowels, I know that, you know. But they're part of us. And I think this is so interesting. If you, if you do any reading about uh, I, I do work with a local mental health authority, so I deal with a lot of people who have behavioral health issues. I, I try to help them and refer them and connect them to resources. And, and so I try to kind of keep up with some of the stuff, the latest science. And it is so interesting. So this word bowels uh, in, that's translated there in the King James means the inward parts. To the Hebrews, this was the seat of emotion. We say the heart. But understand, the muscle in your chest pumping blood through your body is not what drives your emotions. The Hebrews actually had a much better understanding of this. And so the Hebrew word wasn't the heart. The Hebrew word was, was what, what our word bowels, the innermost beings, those inner parts of you. And what I find, that was the seed of affection, the seed of mercy, the seed of compassion was represented in the inward parts. Sometimes it's translated kidneys. That's part of it too. But the bowels. It's interesting that modern science has proven the real connection between our bowels and our brains. Did you know that? I mean, the Bible's been teaching this for, for centuries, thousands of years. You find it in the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, modern-day scientists have discovered there's a link between our brain and our bowels, that our emotional health is actually linked to our gut health. Now, I'm not going to go, you know, nutritionist on you here, but I want you to understand this is the Bible once again affirming what science has finally come to, to realize. Science keeps catching up with the Bible. 
This is really what's happening. Now, they won't say it that way because they don't believe the Bible, but you just keep reading the Bible and you pay attention to the science and you're going to see that the science is continuing to catch up with the Bible because the Bible is the truth. The bowels, we're to have bowels of mercy, as the King James says, and that's a more literal translation than hearts of compassion. So don't be afraid of that, because that's actually what the science proves to us. So we're to put on tender mercies or bowels of mercy. We're to put on kindness. What's kindness? Kindness is having a gentle and a gracious disposition. We're commanded to put on kindness. We're to be gentle and gracious as God is gentle and gracious with us. You do realize that, don't you? You realize how gentle and how gracious God is with us. We teach our kids at school when we ask them, how are you? Their response is, better than I deserve. Because that is true for all of us. I don't care what you're going through today. I don't care what you're dealing with today. The reality is every last one of us is better than we deserve. And none of us here are getting what we, did, we deserve. We've received God's mercy that we did not deserve. We've, he's given us his grace. We didn't deserve his grace. He just gave it to us. Not because we deserved it. So we are all if you're breathing air this morning, you are better than you deserve. That is the kindness of God, the mercy of God. And we are to be kind and merciful as our God is. Put on humility. Have a humble opinion of oneself. Possess a sense of your moral smallness or your moral littleness. Before God. Isaiah. It's recorded for us in Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And I fell down as one dead. What happened? When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple, Isaiah became very aware of his moral littleness. And he was humble in the presence of God. We should possess a humble opinion of ourselves. We should recognize our moral littleness. Our, we should be modest, lowly of mind. I'm not saying that you should be self-condemning and, and, and have that attitude and that mindset of yourself. But we recognize who we are in relation to God, and we realize that none of us are receiving what we, we, what we deserve. We have all been extended God's grace. Whether you trust in him or not, even the heathen, it rains on the just and the unjust. The heathen, the unbeliever, the one who professes there is no God, God is dead, and we heard plenty of those last weekend here in Taylor, Texas. God is dead. Yeah, well, you're breathing his oxygen. You're living because of his sunshine. You're, you're here on his created creation. You are his creation. And you may profess that he's dead, but your very life testifies of his grace. And that you, yourself, are receiving from him what you do not deserve. 
You just don't know that. The difference is I know I'm receiving what I do not deserve from God. And so we should live with that sense of humility, that sense of modesty, of recognizing who we truly are in light of God, in light of His holiness. Put on meekness. Meekness is a word that's very, I think, misunderstood. We confuse meekness with weakness. And there's nothing weak about the meek. Meekness is gentleness. It's, it's translated gentleness in some of the English versions, English translations. But it's not just gentleness. Meekness is not seen as a virtue in our modern era. Because we're all about self-sufficiency. We're all about independence. We're all about pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Have you ever tried to do that, by the way? It doesn't work. I don't even know who came up with that and why you even say that. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You, you can't do that. Uh, maybe, that is, maybe, that, maybe that's good. Maybe, you know, if we tried to do that, we realize that's impossible. Yeah, exactly. It is impossible. So is our whole life impossible apart from God. He makes the impossible possible. And so meekness is not a virtue that's celebrated in our modern era as it once was in times past, especially in antiquity. Meekness does include gentleness, so it's, it's not incorrect that it's translated gentleness because in our modern sensibilities, we've got to have something to relate to meekness. So it does include gentleness, but meekness is more than gentleness. Meekness is an inwrought grace. It's a work of grace that God does in us. Just like humility is a work of grace. To be able to recognize ourselves and our relationship to God is, is His grace. Meekness is also a work of grace of the soul. It's a temper of the spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good, even when we don't feel like they're good, even when we don't agree with them, even when it's a different way than we would have chose for ourselves. Meekness is accepting the dealings of God as good without disputing and without resisting. It is the humble heart which is also the meek that does not fight against God. Moses was called the meekest man in the earth. And if you think about the characteristics associated with the life of Moses, you see his meekness on display all the time. When you realize that, that Moses accepted God's course for his life. Now, there was some pushing back and some arguing there at the beginning, but Moses came to a place of faithful obedience to God. And it's not that Moses always liked what God did, it's that Moses was a man of meekness. That's why the Bible calls him this. And he accepted the dealings of God because he trusted God ultimately more than he trusted himself. And this is what we are called to do. This is Paul's whole point here. This is putting off the old and putting on the new. 
And we're saying we're putting these things on, and one of the characteristics, this characteristic we call meekness, is a characteristic that says, I trust God more than I trust myself. I trust God more than my emotions right now. I trust God more than my temptation to fill in the blank right now. I trust God. I will obey God. I will not obey my impulses. I will not obey what I see. I will obey what God has revealed to me by faith. And there is a difference. In meekness, our meekness before God, we accept those things that God does in our life, his plans, his purpose, his dealings. Our meekness is before God, but it's also in the face of men, especially evil men. You know, there's meekness is not something we have to deal with when we're all together and we're all in agreement and we're all, you know, uh, working for the same goal. Meekness is something that comes to the forefront when we're dealing with especially evil men who would seek to provoke us to sin and to anger. In meekness, we would receive those insults and those injuries inflicted upon us as permitted by God. Remember the story of David when David is fleeing, when Absalom takes over, proclaims himself king, and David realizes if I don't get out of Jerusalem, Absalom and his men are going to kill us. Also, David flees to save his household and to save those who were loyal to him. And remember, as he's leaving, there's this guy hurling insults at David. And the commander of David's army rides up to David and says, Hey, you want me to go take care of that guy? I'll just take his head off real quick and we'll be done with him. Because he, you are the king and he is hurling insults at the king. Remember what David said? David said, No, leave him alone. Because we don't know if God has not put him there to hurl insults at me because that's what I need to hear right now. Because I need some correction. I need some dealing from God. And this may be the way that God is dealing with me. Don't bother him. Let him go. Let him throw rocks. Let him throw insults. Leave him alone. God knows he's up there. And God let him be up there and let him do that. And David's, this was meekness demonstrated by David. David said, I'm going I'm to accept that. At the very least, God allowed it, and God has a purpose for it, so I'm going to endure the insult that's being inflicted upon me right now, though I have every right as the king to have that guy's head removed. And no one, no one would ask any questions. In fact, everyone would probably cheer the moment he had it done. That's meekness in the face of men who hurl insults and injury. It could be permitted by God for his chastening and purifying work on behalf of his elect. We see this, so we see this in the life of Moses. We see it in the life of David and, of course, in the life of Jesus. It is most clearly seen when God worked through the insults and the injuries afflicted upon him to bring about the salvation of the world, the salvation of his people, 
This is the most, this is most clearly seen in our redemption in Christ. In all of these things, we are commanded to put on these characteristics. Long-suffering is another one. Patience. Or patient endurance. It's not just patience. It's patiently enduring. There is a difference. Especially under ill treatment of others. The man who is long-suffering is not easily provoked. This is, this is all related. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. You see how they're all related? The man who is long-suffering is not easily provoked. He does not erupt in anger toward those who would seek to provoke him. I was so, I was so thankful to God for the people that were out there last Saturday at the Pride event. And I'm telling you, people tried and tried and tried to provoke a response. And these were the things that were shown. It was just a constant, steady love, presenting the truth in love, not being provoked, had the opportunity. In fact, I'm going to tell you this. I have not told anyone this yet. Uh, but I got a call from, I'm not, because I'm, this is recorded, I'm not even going to just say, but I got a call from someone who was there in a very official capacity last week. I'll just say that. And that person in that official capacity had the opportunity to arrest one of the, the pride uh, people who had ripped out of uh, the hand, uh, out of Caleb's hand, his sign and sought to destroy it. And this person in authority chased that guy down, got the sign back and said, this is, this is a crime. I, I can write a citation. And Caleb said, nope, just, just ask him to apologize. I don't, I don't want to press charges. Well, that person in authority called me and he said, I want you to know how impressed I was. He said, because he had every right. I had every right to have a citation issued for that individual. But grace was extended. And here's what he said. He said, you can't teach that to people. I saw grace extended, and that's something that you just can't teach. And he's right. Whether he knows it or not, he's right. This is the work of the Spirit of God. This is the work of God in the hearts of his people. This is what Paul is saying. Let this work be manifest in you. Let these characteristics of Christ come out of you. When you are treated ill, when you are tempted to be provoked to anger and to respond in anger, don't do it. Be tenderhearted, be kind, be humble, be meek, be long-suffering, patiently endure the provocation, patiently endure the insults inflicted upon you, patiently endure. All of these things we are commanded to put on all of these characteristics lend themselves to the characteristics of a man whose manner of living is consistent with Christ. And that's why the call was made, evidently. He just wanted to let us know that 
The message was heard, but it wasn't just heard, it was seen, practiced in the interactions with the people that were out there. This, these characteristics reveal to us a man with a compassionate heart, a kind and gentle and gracious disposition, a humble man with an attitude of meekness who does not resist God and will not allow himself to be provoked, a man who patiently endures even under ill treatment by others, a man who trusts God in all things, including how to make the wrongs right. Not a weak man. Don't confuse this with weakness because this is not weakness. There was nothing weak about Jesus. But a man of uncommon strength. And that uncommon strength is found in Christ. Even when we are weak, he is strong. Paul said, when I am weak then I am strong, because Paul understood this truth. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So in putting on these characteristics of Christ, we are also commanded to bear with one another. In bearing with one another, we're to be patient with one another. We're to endure difficulty. We're to to hold up under the pressure of having to not just manifest these things, do these things, but the pressure of, of the ill treatment or the insult. This is what's being communicated here because this is what the church was experiencing. This is what the church is experiencing today. This is why this is so relevant for us today. We're living in a day and time in our nation where we are going to have to practice this. Forgiving one another. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. We're to forgive as we have been forgiven. Forgiveness is a grace given to us by God. We're to give that same grace to others as we have received it ourselves. Listen to the sobering words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Jesus said these words, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, that's a, that's a pretty straightforward scripture. And I've listened and I've watched and been part of conversations where people are trying to wiggle out from under that, but I don't know how you wiggle out from under that. I really don't. If you've got unforgiveness in your heart, the Bible is clear, you need to forgive. And the reason you need to forgive is not because that person deserves to be forgiven, because they don't deserve to be forgiven, just like you and I didn't deserve to be forgiven by God. So we don't forgive because people have earned forgiveness or deserve forgiveness. We forgive because we have been forgiven. And if we have received undeserved forgiveness from God, we are to offer undeserved forgiveness to others. 
We are commanded to bear with one another and to forgive one another. It's not a suggestion. It is a commandment. And then he says, if anyone has a complaint against another, that word complaint also means a quarrel. If anyone has a quarrel or a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, here's the reminder again, so you also must do. Paul makes sure that he does not leave us without a commandment that is easy to look past. In other words, he said, you can't, you can't just skip past this. We are commanded to forgive as we've been forgiven. If anyone has a complaint, if anyone has a quarrel with one another, you are to not just forgive, but you are commanded to forgive even as Christ forgave you. Well, I guess I'll forgive you a little bit. No. There is no little bit. There is no partial forgiveness. When you are forgiven by Christ, you are completely forgiven. You did not receive partial forgiveness from Christ. You received full pardon from Him, and that is what we are to offer to one another. Just as Christ forgave you, so we are to forgive one another. Christ forgave totally, completely, with no root of bitterness left behind. We are to forgive likewise. And if you find yourself struggling with forgiveness, then take it to Christ and give your sinful unforgiveness to Him. Leave it at the cross. And if it comes back, if that root springs up, take it back to the cross and keep doing that until you find deliverance from that sin of unforgiveness. Keep rooting out that bitterness until there is no more of the root left. And you'll know, you will know when that day comes. God does not tire of us coming to Him and bringing our sin to Him. We're the ones that tire of going to God. I just don't want to go to God again. Well, so what's the alternative? You want to just keep that sin and then, and then have to give an account for it and... and Get what you deserve for it? Mm. You don't want that, trust me. So don't grow weary of taking your sin to the cross. And when God has, listen, when you've rooted that out and you're free from that sin, and you've actually walked, you're actually walking in forgiveness, the same forgiveness that Christ gave, you'll know it. You will absolutely know it. So until then, you keep going back to the cross and giving that sin to God. God may direct you to do some action or point you to some point of obedience that you need to follow in order for that to get rooted out, in order for you to be able to walk in that forgiveness. You know, very often, we have unforgiveness toward people, and we need to ask ourselves, have I told that person that I forgive them? Well, no, I haven't. Well, maybe you need to do that. Whatever it is, God will show you. So don't be afraid to ask him. Don't hold on to unforgiveness. It's not worth the cost to your soul. Then he says you're to put on love as the bond of perfection. Verse 14. This is very important. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. 
But above all these things, the way that we can best understand what this is saying is not think of the word above, but think more of the word upon. Upon all these things, put on love. So remember when I took my jacket off? I'm not going to take it off again. But I put on the new man. I put on all these things. Now, the way that Paul is describing that we put on love, now love is another thing I put on on top upon all of these things that we just talked about. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Upon all of those things put on love. Why? Because love is the bond of perfection. Well, what does that mean? It means love is the thing that binds it all and holds it all together and makes it all work. And without love, none of those other things matter. Because we can do all of those things without love and they gain us nothing and they mean nothing if, there is not, if we're not motivated by love. So above all these things, or upon all of these things, put on love, the bond of perfection. So love is what makes our tender mercies, our kindness, our humility, our meekness, our long-suffering, our bearing with one another and forgiving one another. It's what makes all of that fruitful and actually life-changing. Love does that. It binds it all together. It's the bond of perfection. Put on love upon all of these things. Love goes over, above, upon all these things. It's the one thing that binds, holding all these things together, making them complete. Perfect. That word perfect there means complete. In other words, if you don't have love and you've got all those other things, you're not complete. Love is the thing we put upon all of those and makes us complete. Vincent says it like this, love embraces and knits together all the virtues. Lightfoot writes, love is the outer garment that holds all the others in their proper places. All of these virtues can be practiced without love, but when they are, they are what the apostle described in 1 Corinthians 13 as sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Without love, we are nothing, and what we do profits us nothing. And this is why Paul called love the bond of perfection, the thing we are to put on above, upon all of these other things. And then he says, you are to let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God, the peace of Christ, rule in your hearts. This word rule is a sports term that speaks of the umpire, the judge. Let peace, specifically the peace of God or the peace of Christ, be the judge or the umpire that determines the right course when there is a conflict of motives or competing course of action. The peace of Christ is to make that judgment. Though the effectual call of God, or through the effectual call of God, we're called into one body, and that effectual call of salvation has brought us into his peace. 
Do you understand this? God called you to salvation. When he saved you, he brought you into his peace. You are no longer an enemy of Christ. You are no longer an enemy of the Father. God has made peace through Christ. We are at peace. So this is not just this inward tranquility. When we talk about peace, we talk about an inward tranquility. And I'm not saying peace doesn't represent that. But the most important peace that God has given to us in Christ is the fact that we are no longer his enemies. In fact, now we're called his children. We're a part of his family. We're not opposing him any longer. And so we're brought into that peace, the peace of God or the peace of Christ. And out of that peace, out of that salvation, out of that truth, we are to, to judge. Let that peace be the judge, the determining factor. Is what I'm doing going to create hostility between me and God? Or is what I'm doing going to lend itself to peace? Peace of Christ is to make that judgment. In his peace, we're also to be continually thankful. It's hard to be at peace and to not be thankful. If you're a thankful person and you have thankfulness, gratitude in your heart, you're generally going to be a person who abides in his peace. If you think about it, if, I, if I'm not a thankful person, when I'm not thankful for things, I'm usually not feeling peace. When the car breaks down at the most inopportune time, you typically are struggling with peace at that point. You are to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, let it dwell in you abundantly, exorbitantly. He says in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. What's being conveyed here is that the word of God... The word of Christ is to live in us. The word of God is to find its home in us. It's to be at home in us, to dwell, oikos. That's a dwelling, that's a house. This is the word here. The command is to not let the word of Christ be foreign or unfamiliar to you, but rather his word is to be at home in you. You're to be a place where the word of Christ has its familiar home, where the word of Christ in every sense of the word, has a home in you and is at home in you. Think about when you're at home versus when you're at someone else's home. You're different at your home. There's a familiarity there. There's a comfort there. There's a peace there. You don't have trouble taking your shoes off and walking in the kitchen and opening up in the refrigerator and rummaging in there. But you go to someone else's house and you just like, mm, you know, you don't have the same liberty there because it's not your home. And what's being presented here is that the word of God is supposed to have a home in us. And it's a familiar home, a relaxed home, not forced, not awkward. That's how God's word is to be in you at home, in the place it lives and dwells, richly describes how that word of God is to dwell in us. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, abundantly, not sparingly. The home of his word is not to be sparsely furnished, but richly and elaborately furnished with the treasures of God's word. When you walk in a home that's, that's, that where the word of God is at home, I'm talking about your heart. Furnishing your heart should be the treasures that we have found and dug out of God's word. And those things furnish the chambers of our heart. And this is how tender mercy and, and, and meekness and gentleness and long-suffering, this is how all of that comes out of us. Love and joy and peace comes out of us because that's what's furnishing the home of our heart. Because God's word richly dwells there. And if it doesn't, then those things aren't going to come out. Something else is going to come out. So richly describes how the word of God is to dwell in us. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Richly describes how the word dwells in us. In all wisdom describes how we are to use that word that's dwelling in us. In all wisdom. That's in God's wisdom. That comes from his word dwelling richly in us. Illuminated by the Holy Spirit. We're to be teaching and admonishing one another. This is a command to teach and admonish. This command carries instructions on how to carry that out. Teaching, the word teaching here doesn't need explanation. They were in all wisdom of the word to be teaching and instructing one another from God's word. And the purpose of teaching is to instruct the saints that they would grow and mature spiritually and be equipped for the work of ministry. The understanding is that teaching is empowered and used by the Holy Spirit for growth and sanctification for evangelism, for making disciples, for the church to do what it has been commanded by Christ to do. Admonishing. Now, this is a word that we don't use real often today, but we find it in the Scripture. Teaching and admonishing one another. To admonish someone is to warn them of impending danger. The word admonish carries the definite connotation of warning, but it also conveys this understanding of instruction and encouragement. So it's not just someone yelling, danger, turn back, you're going to die. That's what we're accused of doing when we go out to the gay pride event or ministering to those in the LBGTQ community. That's not what we're doing. And that's not admonishing. In admonishing someone in wisdom, you are warning them of the impending danger while teaching them and encouraging them to flee that danger and turn to safety. So in admonishing them, they will better understand the danger they turn from and the salvation they're to turn to. That's what we do when we admonish people. And we're commanded to admonish in wisdom. And we do that how? Paul writes, we do it in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We teach and admonish one another, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This is how Paul instructs the saints to teach and admonish one another. 
It was not uncommon for the church to employ verse or rhythm for theological teaching or statements. In other words, the Psalms, which come from the Word of God and are the Word of God, and the hymns they wrote and sang were all centered in the truth of Scripture so that when they sang those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, they were teaching and admonishing one another. It's a far cry from much of the music we call spiritual today, which could be sung to Jesus or your boyfriend or your girlfriend of either sex. I mean, let's just be honest. In Psalms, these are the Psalms found in your Bible, our songbook inspired by God himself. That's what your Psalms are in your Bible. The Bible commands us to teach and admonish one another in Psalms. This is why we as a congregation sing Psalms, and we seek to sing them more. They instruct us as well as provide a vehicle to worship God. We do this because Scripture commands it, and the long history of the church reveals that is what the saints did for many, many, many centuries until the invention of radio. I'm just teasing. Well, not really. Truth and jest. Truth and jest. I, I just had someone this week say these very words to me. I went into this church and it felt like home immediately because they were singing the songs I'd listened to on the radio. Now, I, I'm not saying don't listen to songs on the radio. Songs on the radio have a great purpose. I mean, if you're going to fill your, you know, Zig Ziglar called listening to the radio, chewing gum for your ears. So if that's, then, then fill your ears with something that's going to be uplifting. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But remember, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What should be in our home and what we hear in our home should be informed by the word of God. And it should teach us and admonish us, not just make us feel better. What's that slogan? Positive and encouraging. It should be more than positive and encouraging. It should teach us and warn us, instruct us. This is what Paul is saying here. And so the word is to ritually dwell in us, and it is the word of God sung or preached that should make us feel at home. Hymns, psalms, and hymns. These are the songs of praise to God. These are the songs with a spiritual content composed by God's people. Hymns are the songs of the church that convey and teach the wisdom and truth of God during the act of praising God. So hymns, like psalms, are to, to teach us and admonish us. So the words matter. The content matters. Spiritual songs, this is the Greek word ode. It's where we get our word ode or song. It, it, it's just a general word for song. And so they sang psalms, they sang hymns, they sang songs, spiritual songs. In other words, everything they sang taught, admonished, and was spiritual in nature, conveying the truth of God's word and the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel. They all convey the same truth. Even though they may be distinct in their content and form, they all will convey the same spiritual truth and wisdom from God's word and spirit they are all to be part of worship singing with grace in your hearts to the lord 
So as we teach, as we admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, you are to be singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And then Paul ends it with this, whatever you do, do in word, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So when we're singing, we're singing to the Lord Jesus. When we're working, we're working to the Lord Jesus. This is a command. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks. Don't forget the thanks. Do it in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to the Father through him. There is not one thing we are to do in word or in deed that we do not do in the name of the Lord Jesus, whether we know it or not. There is not one thing we are to do in word or in deed that we are to do without giving thanks. The same grace in our hearts we are to sing with is the same divine grace and energy that God supplies for us, whether we're singing, whether we're working, whether we're preaching or speaking, it is the same grace, the same divine energy that empowers us to do all things in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As the elect of God, this is how we're to live our lives. This is how we're to walk out our lives in all things. Let's prepare to come to the Lord's table. You may stand. I'm going to give you your charge. God has not left us without provision to carry out his commands. He has given us his word and he has given us his spirit. He has raised us up in Christ and filled us with the resurrection life of his spirit and given to us an abundance of grace in our hearts, not only to sing to the Lord, but to do all in word and in deed in the name of the Lord. And we are to do all while giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us or let his abundant grace work in you. Put off the old and put on the new man created in the image of Christ. Be humble and meek. Do not resist his work or his word. As you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, embrace his gracious dealing as he works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure and for your good and for his glory. You are the elect of God in Christ Jesus. That means we are to live and to walk as the elect are to live and to walk. Walk in the light as Christ is in the light. Obey all he has commanded us. And if we do this, we will see his kingdom come. We will see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what changed the world. This is what is changing the world. This is the founding principle upon which our very nation was formed. We were founded upon the inherently moral principles of God's word and specifically the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul admonishes us, do not grow weary in doing good. You will reap if you do not lose heart. We win. Jesus is Lord. That's good news, church. Amen. Amen.